Space exploration is about to get a whole lot more metal. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Alahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. NASA's upcoming Psyche mission to explore a metallic asteroid will launch later this year. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, the principal investigator for Psyche, joins us to talk about the spacecraft and all of the strange wonders that await when we reach the mission's target. Then we'll turn to Bruce Betts and What's Up for a peek at the upcoming night sky and a look at this week in space history. Exciting news! Scientists have found possible evidence of active volcanism on Venus. The discovery was made using data from NASA's Magellan spacecraft, which orbited Venus from 1990 to 1994. Two grainy radar images taken eight months apart show a volcanic vent morphing from a circular depression into a larger kidney shape, indicating possible volcanic activity. There are alternative explanations, but this finding provides an important data point for scientists trying to understand why Venus transformed from a potentially habitable planet to a total hellscape. Our new article on the subject, written by our senior editor Jason Davis, is available at planetary.org. This next story will tug at your heartstrings, but that's okay. NASA is making plans for how to deorbit our beloved International Space Station. As much as we all wish the ISS could remain in orbit forever, the time has come to prepare to bring it safely down to Earth. The agency's latest budget request includes funding to develop a module that will tug the station to a lower orbit. That way, we can ensure that the ISS re-enters Earth's atmosphere over the South Pacific. That's a place where large spacecraft can most safely crash down to Earth. The ISS has been continuously occupied since 2000 and is scheduled to come down in 2031. In happier news, get ready to find out which astronauts will get to fly around the moon. NASA and the Canadian Space Agency are due to announce the crew of the Artemis II mission on April 3rd. Mark your calendars. The crew will include three NASA astronauts and one Canadian astronaut. They'll conduct a 10-day mission beyond the moon, testing the Orion spacecraft systems before it takes another crew to the lunar surface with the Artemis III mission. You can learn more about these and other stories in the March 17th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org slash downlink. And now it's on to our main subject for today, NASA's Psyche mission. I am so excited about this. There have been several missions to explore asteroids over the years. Dawn, Hayabusa 2, Osiris-Rex, and let's not forget DART. They were all amazing, but NASA's upcoming Psyche mission? This is a whole new ballgame. The Psyche spacecraft aims to study the asteroid of the same name, Psyche, which is located in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's an intriguing object, and by that I mean, it's really, really weird. Asteroid Psyche is believed to be made almost entirely of metal. We aren't sure yet, but this rare metallic asteroid may be the exposed core of a protoplanet that was destroyed in the early stages of formation in our solar system. We have to check this thing out. It could teach us so much about our solar system's formation, not to mention that the images of this strange metallic world are going to be absolutely mind-blowing. NASA's Psyche mission aims to launch on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket later this year. Dr. Lindy Elkins-Tanton is the principal investigator for NASA's Psyche mission. 
and the vice president of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. She's also a foundation and regents professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration. Her most recent book, A Portrait of a Scientist as a Young Woman, is one I highly recommend. She joins us to preview what the Psyche Mission has in store. Hi, Lindy. It's great to have you back on Planetary Radio. Hey, Sarah. Thanks so much for inviting me. I want to say I was very moved by your last appearance on the show. I loved your book, A Portrait of a Scientist as a Young Woman. So if we ever bump into each other in person, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask you to get it signed. <laughs> I would be super honored. And thank you for that. And for people who have been following along with your previous Planetary Radio adventures, when last we left our heroes, which is you and the Psyche Mission team, <laughs> you were hoping that this was going to launch in 2022. But unfortunately, the mission was delayed. And I'm sure everyone is aware that, you know, it's been a challenging few years. Hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, how much did the COVID era kind of play into this mission delay and, and what kind of happened there? Oh my gosh, so heartbreaking. We were um, selected to launch in August last year. And keep in mind, we've been working on this since 2011. It's not like we just started the minute before. But there's a really important moment in a development called the Critical Design Review, CDR. And our critical design review was May of 2020. And so it was just after COVID hit. It was the very first virtual review that NASA ever did. And the significance of the CDR is that when you pass it, you're really given permission to build the spacecraft. And so fundamentally, our team has been in crisis mode since 2020, not just about our personal lives and our families and friends and the world around us and the economy and how people are living through the pandemic, but because we were trying to build a giant spacecraft through COVID. You know, JPL was closed for months. No work happened. And we had equivalent kinds of disasters at our, at our subcontractors. So that absolutely contributed. The team was heroic and we almost made it. We almost made it. We delivered a fully functional spacecraft to Kennedy. And what we didn't quite finish was the testing and final writing of our guidance, navigation and control software. But that was just the proximate cause because honestly, we had really been rushing to try to make it because it really matters. And so getting this extra year that we got has helped us tremendously. And we're going to launch with a lot more assurance in October. Things are going well. So there was a lot of COVID in it. There were staffing issues, um, partly caused by COVID. I mean, it weaves through everything, doesn't it? And so really my takeaway was heroic team, lessons learned for next time. And um, boy, last year was a very painful year for everybody. And I think that we're back up on our feet. Yeah, unfortunately, the delay to the Psyche mission kind of had some knock-on effects and necessarily meant that NASA's upcoming mission to Venus, Veritas, has been delayed as well. So I think it's really important that everyone kind of remembers that, that space is hard and it's yeah. important that we do these things right. And sometimes unforeseen things happen. It is so painful to see Veritas delayed and, uh, you know, we are all fighting not to have it canceled, which it's not on the table, but you worry, right? You worry. We really believe in that mission, all of us. And many things, you know, staffing issues, budgetary issues, Neo Scout and, and Psyche mission all contributed to just an inability. NASA thought to move forward with Veritas right now, but boy, we really, really want it to go. But all of that said, this has only really created a one-year delay for the Psyche mission. So what is our new target launch date? 
The new target launch date is 10 a.m. local time on October 5th <laughs> out of Kennedy in Florida. So our launch period is October 5th to 25th. You know, God willing, we will launch straight away on October 5th on the beautiful Falcon Heavy with its two side boosters that are going to be relanded with the loudest sonic boom you've ever heard in your life. And it's very exciting. So that's that's what we're hoping for. Do you get to be there for the launch? Yeah, I'll be in mission control, which is a privilege that I I try not to just anticipate too much because it's it's so exciting. But it's like getting a little ahead of, you know, we've got seven months to go. But we did get to go a small part of our team, the, the critical people who really need to be on console. And then I got to tag along as PI. We got to do that for the launch that happened last November of the Falcon Heavy where they were relanding the boosters. And it was just I mean, I was mind blowing. So that was like practice. And then I'll be able to really pay closer attention when it's us in October. I'll be less overwhelmed by excitement. I'm really excited about the launch of the spacecraft because, you know, asteroid psyche, as I said, is so weird. We're so used to asteroids that are just, you know, a giant rock or even a pile of rocks. But That's right. this thing is something else entirely. A metal asteroid. My gosh, what are we even going to find there? Right. So Psyche asteroid kind of vies with an asteroid called Cleopatra to be the densest known asteroid. Cleopatra is another one of the ones we think is made of metal. It's so much denser than your average asteroid. It's probably about 4,000 kilograms per cubic meter. And almost all other asteroids are less than 1,000 kilograms per cubic meter because they have so much void space. They're rubble piles, like you say. So their mass becomes an average between what they're made of and nothing. <laughs> You know, the void space. And so the question is, how do you make an object that's made of metal and something else? And what is that something else? Is it rock? If it's rock, it has almost no iron oxide in it, according to its reflected light spectra, which if you're a geologist, that's pretty weird. There aren't that many rocks that don't have any iron oxide in them. And so could it be even something else? Could it be sulfur? Could it be carbon? Or is it just really low iron rock? Don't know. And how is that rock and metal distributed? Is it giant chunks? Is half of the asteroid metal and half of it is rock? Is it mixed on a centimeter scale? How do you make that? And what is it going to look like in the lab when people do hypervelocity impacts into metal? And think for a second, we've never seen impact craters in a metal surface before, right? Just in rock and ice. That's all we've seen. And what does an impact crater in a metal look like? Well, little ones in the lab, the impactor comes down and it causes them with a shock wave and it creates the crater. And there's these splash, these ejecta that kind of the, these rims that normally just fly up and then fall down outside of the crater. But if a small impact in a metal, those ejecta flaps freeze before they fall down. And so they're like spiky standing up walls and spikes. And so all the tiny micrometeorite and small meteorite impacts into Psyche's metal surface could be creating these kind of crown-shaped spiky little pockets all over the surface. So we really don't know. So those are a few of the crazy things we're thinking. And the only thing I can say to you for sure right now is probably everything I tell you is wrong. And that when we get there, it's going to prove to be something entirely different because we're just making our best guesses with our curious minds that we can. And of course, it kind of speaks to the strange formation of this object right. because people That's think right. that it's probably the core of a, a planet that never got fully formed. Yes, that's our simplest idea, you know, that we know that very, very early in the solar system, all within more or less the first three million years out of the 
4,568 million years that there have been in our solar system. Uh, so if it was a 24-hour day, within the first 10 seconds, these bodies called planetesimals formed the size of cities or continents, and that some of them heated up enough from radioactive aluminum-26 that the metal in them melted and flowed to the center to make a core. So in our simple, almost reptilian human brains trying to figure this out. That's where we go to when we think about a big clump of metal that comes from the asteroid belt. It must be part of the core of a planetesimal. But there's lots about planetary formation we do not understand. We've never seen it, right? We just infer it from the fossil remnants in our own solar system and then observations of very distant new solar systems where we can't see in detail. Yeah. But if it is in fact, a, you know, what could have become the core of a planet, this is a really rare opportunity because right. even, even on a planet like Earth, trying to dig even a few kilometers below the surface is impossible at our current technology. Correct. The idea of even getting anywhere near the core on Earth, let alone another planet, is so far beyond our capability. So I'm sure this presents an opportunity for learning things about solar system formation and planetary cores that we've never had before. Yeah, you know, no matter what psyche ends up being once we're there, maybe it is a part of a planetesimal core, maybe it's some other kind of super reduced material, we're going to be looking at ingredients for planets that we've never seen before. You know, if you think of the Earth as sort of the, the layer cake, and we're trying to understand what the eggs and the flour and the butter were, this is a new ingredient. And if it is the core of a planetesimal, though, you are right. This is the only way humans are ever going to see a core. Even in the distant future, when we have the technology to go to the core, it's hard to know why we would ever spend the energy and materials to do that. Nasty, nasty temperatures and pressures down there are so far beyond our capabilities. So as my husband says, we are going to outer space to examine inner space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much amazing science that's going to come out of this. But one of the things I'm personally looking most forward to are the images. Because as you said, the surface is, is going to be really strange. And I really want to know what those craters are going to be like, because the artist concepts of this object, are, you know, giant ball of metal, huge spiky things coming out of the ground. I, I want to know what the difference between the large craters are. And if those edges are actually sharp like razors, you know, it, it's... It's going to be nuts. <laughs> it's going to be nuts. And we've been so fortunate to work with Peter Rubin, this very talented Hollywood designer, to help us imagine what the surface might look like. Because it's, it's hard to get people super excited about something where your only picture of it makes it look like yet another star. <laughs> so we, I spent weekends on Zoom with him for, I don't know, a year, two years downloading into his great brain all of the science ideas we have about this body. And he turned them into art. Indeed, they're just concepts, right? Probably wrong, but they're our best guesses. So yeah, small craters might have these razor sharp points or edges and the big craters probably will not, but we don't know, we don't know. And what we have done, and this is Jim Bell and the Imager team, they have already built the pipeline so that our pictures of Psyche are gonna be on the internet within a half hour of our receipt. We are not gonna edit them. We are not going to do anything to them. We're gonna share them with the whole world for free on the internet immediately. So we can all be scratching our head as he says, going, what is this thing all at once at the same, same time? Something else I'm really hoping that we can find some photographic evidence of is potentially old volcanoes on this object. Oh I know there's gosh. there's some thoughts that maybe when it was younger, more molten, maybe there were literally volcanoes spewing liquid iron on this thing. 
Yeah, we've had this idea from the very beginning of the proposal, and it actually shows in the art that we worked on with Peter Rubin. And since then, some people have written some papers about it, about how it's plausible. Here's the story. The iron and nickel that makes up the cores of all of our rocky planets and the iron nickel meteorites that fall from space, they all have other elements in them as well when they're in the core stage, sulfur and phosphorus and things like that. The minute they start to crystallize, they crystallize out crystals that are just iron and nickel. And those crystals exclude all those other elements. They just are not compatible with the crystal structure. Right away, the rest of the liquid separates into two immiscible liquids, just like oil and water. One of them is the mainly iron and nickel, and the other one is sulfur and iron, more or less an equal ratio of sulfur to iron. It's the liquid form of the mineral troilite. And so this has been shown in the lab, and it's been shown geochemically, and it's pretty inescapable. And the thing about that sulfur-rich immiscible liquid is that it's much less dense than the other one. And so we thought, well, if it's freezing from the outside, as the crust freezes, and there's evidence from some meteorites that they froze from the outside in, their parent body froze from the outside in, so it's not just fantasy, then that outer lid is actually going to be needing to shrink as the material inside it continues to crystallize and become more dense. There'll actually be a reduction in space as the liquid on the inside freezes into a denser form. So the crust is going to have to break up into faults and reshuffle itself and accommodate the smaller interior as it freezes. That, we thought, would squirt the sulfur liquid out through those faults onto the surface. And so that was our idea. And, and people have other ideas. One idea is that maybe even the iron nickel liquid itself could be squirted out. I really, really, really hope we see some evidence of what happened to the sulfur. Because this is a little mystery in meteorites that the iron nickel meteorites all show evidence of having crystallized in the presence of sulfur, but there is not enough sulfur now with them to explain that. So where is the sulfur? This young man came up to me while I was teaching a field trip at an observatory and he was 10 years old. He came up to me and he was like, I am going to be a rich scientist someday. And I was like, oh really? <laughs> How are you going to accomplish that? And he goes, have you heard of Psyche? And I was like, I've, I've heard of Psyche. Oh my gosh. And he goes, well, I want to start an asteroid mining company. And then I want to use that stuff to build new computers and then take the money and fund more space exploration. I love it. <laughs> Not like I'm saying we should go mine Psyche. I mean, it's uh, you know, a very rare object. We should preserve it if we can. But I loved this kid's idea. He was so excited oh by, by Psyche. To, he had a whole plan. <laughs> this is just the most hilarious thing for me. Back in 2017, in January, when I got the call from Thomas Zerbukin telling me that we were selected for flight, I more or less spent the next 24 hours being interviewed on the phone. And I was out in a house in Western Massachusetts up in the snowy hills. And I was out there by myself as it happened. My husband was at a math conference. And it was an amazing, intense and fabulous day. And my neck was sore and like, it was really quite incredible. And PBS NewsHour asked me, how much would Psyche, if it's made of iron and nickel and copper and iridium and rhenium and platinum and palladium and gold and silver, which it is, it'll have little pieces of all of that in the metal phase, inevitably, how much would it be worth? And I thought that's a fun calculation. And so <laughs> I just calculated, I can't remember if it was the iron and the nickel or just the iron, what it would sell for on the world metals market of 2017. 
And the answer was 10 quintillion dollars. And I mean, what does that even mean, right? It's many times the whole global economy. And of course, and they knew this, this is a fallacy at every level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First of all, we have absolutely no way to bring Psyche back ever. Like that is so, it's so far away and it's such a big object. Like I can't even imagine when in the future humans could even do it. And then if you brought it back, of course it would be worth nothing because when you have a glut on the market, all the prices fall. I mean, everything about it is wrong but it's fun to talk about. And of course, because there's a dollar sign in front of it, the whole world kind of went berserk. And we've had so many headlines about how Psyche is going to make us rich. And it's gone. I mean, there's all kinds of absurdist things out there, which is actually kind of fun. And it hasn't been too annoying. (laughs) Even NASA headquarters hasn't been too annoyed. But it's very important to discriminate for everyone. The fact that Psyche mission is a fundamental science mission. We're just going there to learn about our solar system. There's nothing about mining in it, and there's no money to be made. And so it is absolutely not a money-making trip or has nothing to do with mining, except because it'll be our very first look at a metal surface, it'll be very useful for mining companies that want to try to do this with near-Earth asteroids, ones that are much smaller and closer to the Earth. We cannot do it with Psyche. So Psyche at its closest is 240 million miles away. Mars by contrast, gets as close as 32 million miles. And Mars is pretty darn far away. We're not really thinking about bringing resources back to Earth from there. And Psyche is so much farther. So concentrating on near-Earth asteroids, in the future, I'm pretty confident we will have asteroid mining, and that will be good for the Earth. So that's nice. Well, thanks for having this conversation with me, Lindy. I'm I'm so excited for this mission, and I hope this has given other people an opportunity to get as excited as I am, and I'm sure you are. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for inviting me on. It was great to chat with you. Wonderful. And when it actually does reach Psyche and we learn all these amazing things, I would love a few people in to come back on and tell us all about it. I'd be thrilled, of course. I'm so grateful to have had a chance to speak with Lindy. Her life story and her passion for her work is absolutely inspiring. And if you can't tell, I'm already planning to make Psyche pictures my wallpapers on every device in my home. You can find the extended edition of my interview with Dr. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, the principal investigator for NASA's Psyche mission to a metallic asteroid, in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up after this short break. Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for an update on the night sky and what's up with Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Hey, Bruce. 
Hey, Sarah, how you feeling? I'm doing so much better than I was a few weeks ago. <laughs> Thanks for asking. And I keep getting messages from people all around the world still that are just like, make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you get the rest. Just you know, very kind. So I'm really grateful. That's nice. Yeah. But getting better all the time. Good, 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 good. So what's going on in the sky this week? I can actually go outside now. I'm out of quarantine. <laughs> hey, congratulations. And it's occasionally clear here in between massive storms. Uh, so you'll be able to hopefully see over low in the West, super bright Venus, Jupiter getting lower and lower. It's a, it's getting tough. You have to see it shortly after sunset, but Venus looking spectacular, brightest star-like object up there. And then uh, look up high. You can see Mars, which is much dimmer and uh, reddish. And then for you pre-dawn folks, Saturn getting higher and higher over in the east, actually becoming sort of easy to see now. Fairly bright, looking yellowish, and that's, that's basically what we got going on. On to this week in space history. You probably remember it was 1655 that Christian Huygens discovered Saturn's moon Titan. With a moderate telescope, even a fairly small telescope, you can probably pick out Titan if it's on one part of its orbit away from Saturn. If you look at Saturn and look for a little dot off to the side, you can just rediscover Titan for yourself. On to... So uh, geostationary satellites hang out in the same place over Earth, uh, about 36,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. We point our TV dishes and communication satellites at them. They orbit at the same speed. So I thought, hey, what would an aerostationary satellite be like? So orbiting Mars. And it uh, turns out it's about half the altitude of a geostationary satellite. So the proper place to stick a spacecraft, so it's always looking at the same place in the sky from where you are on the surface. So you place it in the equatorial orbit and about eh, 20,000-ish kilometers above the surface. Shall we go to the trivia contest? Let's do it. I believe the question was, what science instrument on the Voyager spacecraft has a name whose acronym is also the name of a part of an eye, E-Y-E, eye. How'd we do? We got a lot of really interesting answers. Uh, many people actually sent us in trivia bits from other sci-fi TV shows they thought was referencing this instrument. But the answer is Voyager's IRIS, wow. which stands for Infrared Interferometer Spectrometer and Radiometer. Our winner is Marcel John Kriegsman from Gouda, Netherlands. So you're going to be winning Matt Kaplan's personal copy of a book called Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong by Greg Brennica. <laughs> I feel like I should read this book. I mean, Donkey Kong, how did that come in there? <laughs> All right, we'll move on to a new question. What do astronomers call a ring caused by gravitational lensing? So they look in a, uh, in a telescope image. They see a ring caused by gravitational lensing. What do they call it? There are actually a couple possible answers that will be considered correct. And so give me one official thing, not what just some astronomer calls it when he's really sleepy or she in the middle of the night. <laughs> Go to planetary.org slash radio contest and get your entry in. And you have until Wednesday, March 29th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. 
And the winner this time will win another Planetary Society beanie to keep you warm. <laughs> also, I wanted to say happy Equinox to everyone. This next upcoming Monday is the Equinox. So everyone on the Northern Hemisphere, have a happy spring. And everyone in the Southern Hemisphere, happy autumn. Nice. Happy Equinox, everybody. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about hummingbirds. Thank you, and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with more updates on the world of space science and exploration. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Asteroid Enthused members. Mark Helverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.